Good morning. Uh, you can turn in uh, your Bibles to Psalm 23, which is a familiar psalm to us. The beginning says, the Lord is my shepherd, and we immediately recognize it. It's quoted in uh, movies. It's often uh, memorized even by accident by many of us. As you find your way there, uh, I wanted to share that I, I didn't grow up singing many uh, hymns, uh, but one that always resonated with me was Come Thou Fount, when we sing prone, prone to Wander, Lord I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love. I, I feel like I could have uh, written those words myself. If it said prone to weakness, I would resonate with that as well. If it said uh, prone to sickness, I would resonate with that. Prone to doubt, I would resonate with that. And so uh, I've always heard those words and said that, uh, that is something uh, I understand. And uh, many of you know that uh, my testimony um, is that I became a believer early on in life. Uh, and uh, similar to Timothy, right, he was acquainted with the sacred writings from his youth. He was taught by his parents, and he believed it. Uh, but because I became a believer early on in life, all of my moral failures or my all of my most serious moral failures were ahead of me, right? They were after uh, conversion. And because of that, I always envied the testimony of those who came to know the Lord later. Uh, and the reason for that is because they had a clear before and after Christ. Uh, they had a before uh, that was marked or characterized by sin and misery. They, they encountered Christ at some point in their life, and then they had an after. And the, the after, at least how it was being portrayed to me, was characterized by faithfulness. And these testimonies, uh, they they had two things typically that were th that they had in common. One is that they had a radical conversion story, like uh, being blinded on the road, like Paul. And it wouldn't be that dramatic, but it would be something similar. Uh, and then they had that before and after picture, uh, crystal clear, that they could at least describe to us, like a kind of like a weight loss testimony. And I was under the impression that that, that's that testimony with the radical conversion moment, uh, like being blinded on the road and that radical before and after, that that was normative. And if you didn't have that testimony, then you should question yours. You should question whether you were saved. And uh, it turns out that I was not the only uh, one who grew up in a Christian home who envied that testimony of coming to know the Lord later in life. And so what we did in our Christian circles, and the reason I'm sharing this is because I think a lot of you can relate, what we did is we invented that testimony. And the, the way that we did that is we categorized the weakness that we experienced as sheep. We, we categorized our wanderings. Um, uh, when we wandered from the Lord and, and felt, uh, got caught in sin, we categorized those seasons of life as the before, right? That was evidence that we didn't know the Lord. 
And so we heard two testimonies, the, the coming to Christ later in life, that clear picture, and then everyone who grew up in the church had the same story, and we would say that we made a profession of faith when we were young, but then we struggled with this or that sin. Later on, we experienced some sort of repentance and were restored, and what we did is we moved our justification away from our profession of faith into after we got our act together. And the problem with that, it would be one thing if we said when we experienced repentance and, and uh, experienced an increase of, of grace and our understanding of the gospel and had more of a passion for, for God's word that our assurance of salvation increased. That would be one thing. But to move your justification uh, to after you, uh, when you connect it to your faithfulness, that becomes problematic. As sheep, we are prone to wander. And Psalm 23 helps us understand that our hope is not in the strength or resolve that we have as sheep. That's even confusing to say, strong sheep. Strong sheep are still very weak, uh, considering. But our hope is in the faithfulness of our good shepherd, who restores lost sheep back into the fold, and who has promised to not lose any that the Father has given him. So with that in mind, let's read the psalm together. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray for the Lord's help to understand his word. Our Heavenly Father, if we understood half of the truths in this psalm, then we would have enough comfort to get through the darkest seasons of life. So I pray now that you'd help us understand your word and help us trust in our good shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1, David confesses that the Lord is my shepherd. Not a shepherd, but he says the Lord is my shepherd. But we can take comfort in the fact that what the Lord is to one saint, he is to all. So the church can say, the Lord is our shepherd. And if we truly wrestle with what that means, that our triune God leads us like a shepherd who leads his flock, then we will have enough comfort and peace. Uh, we'll have a comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. What a blessing it is that the all-knowing God, who is most holy, most wise, most loving, who is in every way infinite, who is the first and chiefest being, as our catechism, or catechism says. There is none like him. Right? That God is our shepherd. And as our shepherd, he leads us. He provides for us. He brings us back when we've wandered. And he even lays down his life for his sheep. 
we have a tendency when we interact with a part of uh, God's word that's as famous as this one to take it so lightly, right? To let it come across our lips without uh, considering uh, the depth of meaning that's there. And that's, uh, we're prone to do that with this psalm because it's often read at funerals and quoted in movies and, uh, like I said, memorized by accident, memorized by unbelievers. But the truths in it, if understood and believed, comfort the weariest of souls. Someone once said before they died that Psalm 23 is my creed. I need, I desire no other. I learned it from my mother's lips. I've repeated it every morning all my life, and yet I do not half understand it. I'm only beginning to spell out its infinite meaning, and death will come upon me with a task unfinished. But by the grace of Jesus, I'll hold on to this psalm as my creed, and strive to believe it and live it. For I know it will lead me to the cross, and it will guide me to glory. And that quote, he's not taking a jab at the creeds that we recite as a church and, and uh, look to and confess with the church, but he's saying, as death approaches and as uh, his mind uh, grew dim, uh, the Lord is my shepherd is a creed that you can hold on to. It's a creed that you can remember and trust in. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he says, I shall not want. And we're, in, we're uh, tempted to interpret the second half of verse 1 as if it was a commandment. As if it was saying, because the Lord is our shepherd, you shall not want. Like it was uh, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder or you shall not lie. But the words, I shall not want, is not an, a commandment. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative. It's simply stating something that is true. It's saying that if the Lord is your shepherd, then you will lack nothing. Our shepherd knows our needs. We think we know our needs, but he actually knows them. And many of us are parents. And as parents, we, we uh, know very well that there's a distinction between what our children think they need and what they actually need. They think they need candy for breakfast. And they think they need to chase the ball into the street without looking. But as parents, we know what they actually need. And so does our good shepherd. Just like children are dependent upon their parents to provide, as sheep, we are dependent upon our good shepherd. And we even see this in how Christ taught us to pray. He said, give us today our daily bread. This is something we ask for daily. We ask for his provision daily. And we often think that, Lord, if you would just give me bread for the week, then I could rest. Or, Lord, if you would just give me bread for a month, then I would feel secure. But one of the weaknesses that we are prone to is to uh, look to the things that have been provided and hope in them rather than uh, trusting in God who provided those things in the first place. As sheep, rest does not come easy to us. A quiet trust in the Lord does not come naturally to people with the numerous weaknesses that we have. So in verse 2, we see that the Lord helps us with that as well. Verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
and he leads me beside quiet waters. When the people of God were enslaved in Egypt, and this is something we should be familiar with uh, in our series in Exodus, when they were enslaved in, in Egypt, they served uh, Pharaoh. And when they served Pharaoh, when they were under his tyranny, they were commanded to make bricks without straw. There was no rest for the people of God in Egypt. But then it says in Psalm 78, uh, that the Lord, he led uh, forth his own people like a sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. When the Lord led his people out of Egypt, he didn't give them an impossible task like make, make bricks without straw, but he actually commanded them to rest. In Exodus 16, before they reached Mount Sinai, he gave them the Sabbath. He, uh, and uh, observing the Sabbath is difficult when some of our needs haven't been provided for or we haven't prepared, we don't feel ready. But he provided for all of their needs. Right? When they were hungry, he rained down manna from heaven. When they were thirsty, Moses struck the rock and the water poured out. And when they desired other food, God caused the east wind to blow and dropped quail in the midst of their camp. And when he uh, commanded them to rest on the seventh day, and he provided, uh, he provided a double portion on the sixth, uh, sixth day so that they could gather all that they needed in order uh, for the people of God to be able to cease from their works and rest. But they still failed to do it. Exodus 16, 27 recounts how after all that God had provided, the people still went out to gather on the seventh day and found nothing. Rest does not come naturally to sheep, and it does not come naturally to sinners. We work when he commands us to rest and profit nothing. He clothes us with his righteousness, and we try to merit our own. He promised to provide for all of our needs, and we make ourselves sick with worry. We're like a tired child who's fighting sleep. I'd never heard the term overtired until a few years ago. But what we do with a child who's fighting sleep, an overtired child as loving parents, is we make them lie down. Our good shepherd causes us to rest. By his providence, he provides for us uh, for all of our physical needs. And by his grace, he provides for us for our spiritual needs as well. When God's people were hungry, he rained down manna, but Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. John 6, 51. And when they were thirsty and Moses struck the rock and water flowed from it, Paul reflecting on that narrative said in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, uh, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which follow them, and the rock was Christ. The Lord does not just provide for physical needs, but he has provided for us his very own son. And his son, who is Christ, says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In John 10, 6, in that same context, when Jesus is describing the, the parable of, of the good shepherd, he says in John 10, 10, 6, that he was speaking to them uh, using a figure of speech. Now, that should be obvious to us, right? We're not actually sheep. 
but we're like sheep. And so we can understand our text. According to Jesus, reflecting on Psalm 23, uh, Ezekiel 34, and Isaiah 40, all these passages that I'm going to show us in a moment. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, in that context, he's speaking figuratively. We can understand that Psalm 23 is doing the same. So when our text says that he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters, this is a figure of speech or a picture of the rest that we have in the gospel and the eternal life that we have in him. There's a rich history in the Old Testament of the promises about a good shepherd who would one day come and lead his people. And he would make them lie down and rest in his grace. And he would lead them to living waters that provided for them eternal life. And I want to show you a couple of these passages. You can turn there if you'd like. And the first one is Isaiah 40. If not, you can write them down and read them later. But Isaiah 40 is a prophecy about a forerunner. A forerunner who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it should sound familiar to us because it is, it's quoted in the Gospels. I believe it's quoted in all four Gospels. And Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, and make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now the Gospels makes it clear that this text was a prophecy about John the Baptist. He was the forerunner who would uh, prepare the way for the Lord. And then in Isaiah 40, uh, 40, verse 6, it unfolds for us that uh, what John the Baptist was commissioned to say. It says in verse 6, a voice calls out. And this is the voice of the Lord here. And so the forerunner responds, well, what shall I call out? And then God provides to him what he should say. And in verse 10, it says, behold, the Lord God will come. This is, this is the message of the forerunner. The Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. To summarize what Isaiah 40 is doing is it's teaching that one day a forerunner would come before the Messiah, and he would prepare the way for the Lord by teaching what the Messiah would be for his people. He would be a shepherd, and he would gather his people to himself and carry them in his arms. The second passage is Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel uh, 34, what we see is God is rebuking the shepherds who were over Israel, uh, which were the religious leaders of the day, and they were not caring for the sheep. In Ezekiel uh, 34, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? And then in verse 10, God pronounces judgment upon these false shepherds and says that he would take away the sheep that they preyed upon and cause them not to be shepherds anymore. And then in verse 11, God promises that he himself would come and be the shepherd over his people. 
Ezekiel 34.11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And then in verses 14 through 15, it says, I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest. So to summarize Ezekiel 34, it teaches that God himself would come to shepherd his people and he would confront the false shepherds and he would take his sheep back from them and then he would uh, feed them in green pastures and cause them to rest so when we get to the gospels in john 10 that is exactly what we see in john 9 jesus is having a confrontation with the pharisees the false shepherds who were preying upon God's people. They taught the law and their own tradition as a covenant of works when they did not obey, obey the law themselves. They turned the house of God into a den of robbers, and they profited by teaching error to the sheep. And it's in that context, confronting the, uh, the false shepherds, that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep, John 10, verse 11. And that's why when the forerunner, John the Baptist, uh, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, when John came to prepare the way for the Lord and when he proclaimed that the Messiah would gather his sheep. And this is in fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, when Christ would rebuke the false shepherds and promised to lead his people. But Ezekiel 34 also promised that he would lead us to good pastures and cause us to rest. And we also see this fulfilled in Jesus' teaching when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Richard Barcellos once said that the context of any text is every text. The scriptures are one manifold witness of the good goodness of God. They agree with one another. So with all that background in mind, we can understand that when our text says that he makes us, makes me lie down in green pastures, this is figurative language, according to Jesus in John 10, 6. And this is speaking about the gospel rest that we have because of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. But what about the quiet waters that he leads us to? We have reason to believe that this points us to Christ as well. In John 4, when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus first asked her for a drink. But then he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask God and I would give her, or I would give you living water. And then in verse 14, John 10, 14, he said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst again, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then in Revelation 7, the last text here, it pulls together the imagery of Isaiah 40 and Ezekiel 34 and John 4 and John 10, and it shows that the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and our good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, 
who leads us to the waters of life, that that's all accomplished by the same person. Revelation 7, 16 says, They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. Our good shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures. He makes us lie down in the green pastures of his grace, and he leads us beside the waters that well up to eternal life. And then in verse 3, says that he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The word for restore uh, used in verse 3, it means to turn back. It would be consistent with the meaning to say that he repents my soul. He turns it back to him. And one theologian said that the same hand which first rescued us from ruin reclaims us from all our subsequent aberrations. He turns us to himself originally in our effectual calling when the Spirit of God convinced us of our sin and misery apart from him and enabled us to embrace Christ, right? He turned us to himself in that moment. But once we're in the fold, we still have a tendency to wander. He's leading us to green pastures, but we stop to snack on the weeds, that sort of thing. He's leading us to quiet waters, but we uh, wander off to find a puddle. And we do this sort of thing again and again. But if the Lord is your shepherd, then you can take comfort in the fact that he restores our souls and he turns back our souls to him. 1 Peter 2.25 says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He leads us. He turns us back. But where does he lead us to? The second half of verse 3 says that he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. If Christ only pointed us in the right direction and then it was up to us to attain righteousness, then our salvation would not, to, would not be to the glory of his name alone. Because if we merited righteousness, if we attained it, then we would have reason to boast. But the righteousness that he leads us to is his righteousness. Paul seven, uh, says in Romans 1:17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And if the gospel is received by faith, then the righteousness of God is not just revealed, but it is imputed meaning it is charged to your account. And this was the hope of the Old Testament saints as well. Right? They looked forward to the day when their good shepherd would come through the line of David, and he would be their righteousness. If you're willing to turn to one more passage, Jeremiah 23 shows us this. It shows us that the hope of the Old Testament saints was in the good shepherd coming to lead them, and he would be their righteousness. It's the same hope that we have. 
Jeremiah 23 and find verse 3. It says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them out and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. This is the foundational truth that must be apprehended to have comfort in life and comfort in death. When we still have some sort of, some remnants of, uh, of strength left in us, then we can be tempted to entertain trusting in other things. We can be tempted to have a mixed hope, as Spurgeon says. But when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and all of our false, confidence, uh, false confidences are stripped from us, then only the man who can say, the Lord is my shepherd and he is my righteousness will have no reason to fear. Look to verse 4. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Samuel uh, Pierce said in his commentary on this passage that saints have a journey before them. They must walk on in the journey of life. They cannot conclude it but by death. And this is at their journey's end. They cannot be excused. They must walk into the valley, and in it there is a shadow, and it is a low valley, so low that the believer in Jesus cannot walk in a lower. It is the valley of the shadow of death, and in it death and the believer will meet. In that quote, Samuel Pierce explains to us what the valley is. It's where death and the believer meet, and we will all walk down it. But then he goes on to explain that even though this is the lowest valley that we will walk in as believers, he goes on to explain why we still have hope and why we still have no reason to fear. This is Samuel Pierce again. He says, even though that this is where death and the believer meet, they meet here as very good friends. No sooner do believers find themselves in this valley do they begin to find there is no cause to fear any evil. For as in Christ they are without all spot of sin, so they are made the righteousness of God in him, and being found in him, they are perfectly safe and everlastingly secure. The first reason that we have hope in the valley is that is the imputed righteousness of Christ. There is no wrath left for the believer. There is no wrath left for those who trust in him. The second reason for the hope that we have in the valley is that Christ has defeated death. Christ walked into the valley before us. He is the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep, but then he rose. He said, I lay my life down and no one takes it from me and I have authority to take it up again. And that he did. 
And when he rose, he defeated death. He became the first fruits of the resurrection. He rose, and we are united to him, so one day we will also rise. Because of Christ, death has no hold on you. Because of Christ, death has lost its sting. And because of Christ, Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because of the promise of the resurrection, our text does not say that we walk into the valley, but we walk through it. And at the end of it, the light of eternal glory opens to our view. Death, this is what Spurgeon said, death has been reduced to a mere shadow of what it was. And he said, man has no reason to fear a shadow because the shadow of a dog cannot bite you. The shadow of a knife cannot cut and the shadow of death can do you no harm. Then the psalmist shifts from speaking about the Lord to speaking to him. Before he spoke about God in the third person, he is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. Uh, beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. But then he speaks to God directly in the first person as he expresses the reason why he does not have fear. He says, I fear no evil for you are with me. None of our earthly companions can come with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Our spouses can't come. Our parents can't come. Our pastor can't come. And even though these people may hold your hand, as that day approaches, when the time comes, you walk on ahead of them. But we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death knowing two things. One is that the Lord is with you. And even though in that moment uh, we will be stripped from all of our earthly possessions, we can also know that we will possess his word. The Lord will be with you, and also the word of the Lord will be with you. We will still possess the promises of the gospel that we find in his word. And this is what David was expressing when he said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The promises of the gospel come with us. And like a rod and a staff, they hold us up and guide us safely through. Then in verse five, it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. After the exodus, when God brought Israel out of slavery and into the wilderness, the people started to question God's ability to provide almost immediately. They said things like, God brought us out here to die. Exodus 14.11. And at least in Egypt, we had food to eat. Exodus 16.3. And one of the skeptical questions that they raised to God uh, was when they asked, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? 78, 19, or Psalm 78, 19. And essentially what they were uh, saying is that can, can God really provide for us in the circumstances that he has led us to? Right? He brought us out into the wilderness. Can he prepare a table for me here? But here in our, our psalm in verse 5, David confesses that the Lord provides a table in the presence of our enemies. Even in the face of death, he anoints our heads with oil and our cups overflow. And when our text says that God prepares a table before us, I can't help but think of the table 
that the Lord provided for us uh, in his sacrificial death. We come to the table each uh, week that he provided, and we eat of the bread and drink the wine. In In our observance of that meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we do that as the church militant. Uh, we do that in the presence of our enemies and, and all those who are filled with pride, who, have, uh, who see no need for a savior. Uh, they look on at what we do and they mock us for the simplicity of our hope. But although what God has prepared for us at the table is foolishness to those who are perishing, the promises uh, that they represent, they are the power of God for us who are being saved. When it comes to the uh, cup, Augustine commented on this passage uh, about the cup that overflows. He said that the cup overflows so much that we are inebriated with blessing. And thinking of the the martyrs, all those who have uh, died confessing this faith, he said, with this cup were the martyrs inebriated when going forth to their passion or to their death. They recognize not those that belong to them, not their weeping wife, not their children, not their relations. But while they uh, were going to their death, they, they gave thanks and said, I'll take the cup of salvation. When the Lord is your shepherd, when you know that he laid down his life for the sheep, when you know that you are clothed with his righteousness and that he is with you until the end, then what can man do to you? If you promise that you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and his rod and his staff rule over you and comfort you and keep you, then what is there left to fear? When you understand the value of our confession, when you understand what our good shepherd is uh, leading us to, then you can be prepared to say, and if you're trusting in those things, you can be prepared to say, take the world, but give me Jesus. Then in verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If the Lord is your shepherd, then you can be sure that goodness and loving kindness will follow you. And the Hebrew word translated as follow has a stronger emphasis than uh, we may typically think. When it says that goodness and mercy follow you, it means that uh, uh, it, it chases after you. Goodness and loving kindness pursue you. If we wander, it pursues us. If we get lost, it finds us. If we get stuck while we are lost, it untangles us. And this is why I have a hard time with the paradigm of the faith that is so common today that has no category for uh, weakness in the Christian life. Everyone here is prone to wander. Everyone here is prone to leave the God we love. And our hope is not in the strength that we have as sheep. Our hope is in the fact that he will not lose one of them. He will not lose any that the father has given him. The prodigal son is welcomed home because he is a son. The lost sheep are returned to the fold because they belong to the shepherd. So if there are seasons of life where you strayed after you initially trusted in him for salvation, but by the grace of God, here you are. He brought you back. Isn't that evidence that you are a part of his fold? Even during the darkest moments, 
find it odd that when many Christians, out of really out of obedience to the word of God, uh, they confess their weakness and sin. Because First John says that in, if anyone says they are without sin, they are a liar. So when Christians are uh, in many contexts today, when they confess weakness and sin, and they're expressing their desire to grow in grace and obedience to their Lord, they're often given the counsel that real sheep don't wander. Real believers can't have that struggle in for that long. My concern is that this kind of counsel can lead the church to posture strength to others. But a postured strength will never cause us to rest in green pastures or lead us beside still waters. It won't restore our souls or carry us through the valley of the shadow of death. All of our hope, to use the words of a hymn, is in the fact that he leadeth me. He leadeth me. And where does he lead us to? The last part of our psalm says that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, Christ is our, is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, that that would be our creed. That that would be a truth that we would hold on to and understand and trust in. We pray that we trust in your uh, providential hand over our lives. We pray that uh, even when we do not understand the circumstances that you've brought us to, just like Israel did not understand why they were brought into the wilderness, that we would know and believe that you can prepare a table in the wilderness. You can provide. And Lord, I pray that we'd ultimately hope in the fact that all of our sins have been forgiven that you have accepted us as righteous in your sight because of your son. And I pray that uh, knowing that we would walk through the valley of the shadow of death one day and dwell in your house forever, I pray that that would give us hope now. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.